Hi FI Europeans, today I talk with Daniel, a member of our community about cryptocurrencies and in particular Bitcoin. While you might not want to employ crypto to achieve your financial independence goals as it's harder to predict the result compared to a diversified ETF portfolio, some people already made a small fortune with their early crypto adoption and knocking at the door of family offices asking for help to preserve their new wealth and transition to a more conservative and diversified approach. This is the first part of two episodes that is focusing more on what money is, how banks work with your money, how inflation works and it affects your financial independence plans. We think it's important to understand the impact of the new types of money that currently emerge. Welcome to the Financial Independence Euro podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage and making the most of your money. This was your host, Matthias. Hello, FI Europeans. Do you like to diversify your portfolio and earn a nice and steady income? With LandSecured, you can invest in agricultural projects and support European farmers directly starting from 1st of March. It's a great alternative for payday loans with a loan term from 6 to 12 months. These loans are secured by crop insurance, personal guarantee and a three-way agreement. Visit financial-independence.eu slash LandSecured or click the link in the show notes to learn more. Hello, everybody, to another episode of the FI Europe podcast. Um, today with me is uh, David. Um, hi, David. Hi. And uh, David is, uh, is somebody out of our community who actually replied uh, to the last newsletter. And uh, he digged um, kind of deep into the crypto space and has a lot of, um, yeah, made a lot of thoughts about um, the monetary system. And that's why I invited him to. Uh, record an episode with me and uh, share his thoughts and i mean why uh, why inviting uh, crypto gurus from youtube when we have uh, also experts in our community yeah so let's start first of all maybe uh, david tell us a little bit because i also think um, maybe your your personal story is also sure. interesting for for the uh, community so you're kind of living in germany um you mentioned I do. and uh, you come from where um, I come from Spain. My name is uh, David, 30 years old. I come from Spain, but I'm living as an expat in the south of Germany, in Stuttgart, for almost uh, eight years already. I came in the year 2013 for an Erasmus, and I ended up staying here. Um, I'm a mechanical engineer myself. I have been working for uh, Mercedes-Benz in the last uh, six years. And very recently, I had the honor to do a career switch. and since um, First of April, I'm working for Tesla. And me, myself, um, of course, together with, with my wife, um, we discovered the whole FIRE movement and the concepts um, around two years ago. And I would say we are like, uh, yeah, seriously into it and and then pursuing this goal in our life also around about two years. And that's why I have also been following you and your podcast for a while. Very good. Uh, it's an honor. And <laughs> uh, do you like Spätzle? Because that's that's what people eat in South Germany. <laughs> I'm not a big a big fan of of uh, pasta in general, and I must say also not not the biggest fan of German cuisine. Sorry, <laughs> but I come from Spain that has very high standards. It's very difficult for me to travel to a new country and say this food is better than what I know home. Yes, yes, you have nothing very, against Germany. <laughs> very very nice cuisine in 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 Spain. Also a bit meat heavy, I guess. Also, yeah, it depends. But yes, could be. 
All right. So, and um, what's your what your maybe just very brief? What's your take on financial independence? Well, how do you, how do you plan to uh, go FI in in a nutshell? Well, um, so my whole FI learning process started pretty much like uh, in the classical way. I, I read your your money or your life, um, amazing book. I mm -hmm. find most of the principles in that book still apply today. Mm -hmm. um, the typical formula. Earn as much as you can, know what you are spending, spend as little as you can, and invest the difference. The part of that book that, in my point of view, is uh, very outdated is the last chapter, the, the one about invest the difference. Uh, the time your money on your life um, was written, mm -hmm. it was possible to just buy bonds and ensure a lifelong income out of that. Um, that's obviously, for very long, uh, not anymore the case. The a little bit more um, modern approach of the FIRE methodology is to just invest the difference in an in index ETF, um, which my opinion still could work, but I drive um, a little bit more innovative approach to FIRE where I try to earn as much as I can, spend as little as possible, allocate a portion of the difference in a good form of money, and then invest in ETFs what is left. And this middle step of allocating a portion of my savings rate monthly to a better form of money, it's what uh, we will most of all be talking about today. Because exactly. I, the point I want to make in the, today's interview is that choosing your form of money is the most influential factor in the time it takes to achieve financial independence. Interesting um, headline. So let's then dive directly into the topic. Uh, you also um, learned uh, in, in the recent months or years, uh, you also um, learned about um, the concept of money and what it means, um, what technology is um, behind that and uh, why we kind of using it. Um, so what's, um, can, you, can you tell me a bit about um, where money comes from and when did it begin? And how it then leads now to kind of the disruption in the field um, right now. So why, for example, mm -hmm. why is now this this whole cryptocurrency stuff? Why yeah. now? Sure, we can we can dive there. Um, I think one one of very uncomfortable questions that any child can ask his father or his mother is, uh, "Mom or Dad, what is money?" Yeah. Every person in the audience can, can ask themselves, if your child or your niece, if you don't have a child, would ask you, what is money? How would you explain that? How would you explain that to a 10-year-old? Let me try. It's, you can try it. Yes. Okay. Go on. I say um, money, you, or well, explain it to my son. Money is something that you can kind of give in return if you want to get a certain good of somebody. So if you want to buy a coffee and... Um, then you can give money to get the coffee. But in earlier times, um, people had no money and then they would just um, offer something else in, in return of the coffee. So you could say, okay, the, the, ba the bakery, the guy in the bakery, he wants to get um, maybe some flowers. <laughs> and then you could say, okay, I'm giving some flowers and I get in, in return the coffee. So it's, And um, maybe if you only have, for example, shares, you only have chairs but you want a coffee but the, the the guy from the bakery only wants to have um flowers then you need a form of uh you need something in between 
um, so that you can first of all um, sell the share to somebody who wants uh, shares. Then you get some something, some value where the value is stored, and then you can go to the bakery or you can go to the flower shop. <laughs> flower. Okay, it's very difficult. It's not. Um, I was I was close, but. Um, it it's up. not bad you get you go on the on the right way but uh, you get my point like mo most people don't really think much about what money is or, or how it works because it's um money is really this intersection between engineering and economics money is a technology and it's so deeply embedded in our culture that it has become completely invisible to most of us um in fact we, we don't even think about it in most cases unless it stops working of course when when money stops working then people it's all they think about and in the end money is a technology that has a purpose uh, like you said in earlier times um people were transacting only through barter what you have uh, described basically a person produces something good and only that good and exchanging it with somebody else who produces another good that he wants However, that's a very inefficient way of transacting, which is only through direct transactions, and that works only in very small communities. Money uh, is a technology that emerged naturally, and it enabled individuals to perform an indirect trade, meaning that every person in the society could specialize in a certain good, and then this society would organize the productivity in a complex way. Every member of the society would produce that, what he or she can produce the best, and through use of money, could get everything else that he needs. Mm. But there is, this is the thing that there is no clear border between what is money and what is not. Basically, any good can act as money. There has been many, many forms of money in, in humanity's history. From Barter, we went to, to first abstractions of money, which were things like, like seashells, or raised or stones, these, these huge big stones with a hole in the middle. Um, then we went to precious metals. Then we evolved to paper money. And uh, nowadays, most people use what I call uh, plastic money, which is either credit cards or, or something like PayPal. PayPal and credit card is essentially the same thing. But there is no clear border what is money and what is not. There is, in, in any context, in any society, money will be the most saleable good that this community has available. Meaning, for example, if in any community, the only goods that were available were apples and salt, mm. then this community will naturally tend to use salt for exchanges. Why? Because apples rot and they get spoiled after a certain time. And salt is more sellable than apples and so on. So mm. any, good, any good that is the most sellable in a certain context will act as money for this society. And what I also want to say is there have always been several types of money coexisting at the same time. It's not mm. such that any society has had only one and that's it, except for certain societies, like for example, in, in prisons, they transact with cigarettes because they don't have access to much more. Mm. But in free societies, there has always been several forms of money coexisting and competing with one another. And no money has ever been the best for all use cases and also no money has ever been the best forever sooner or late a better stronger form of money emerged mm -hmm. and other people started using it because it was more saleable so that's also what my grandparents are afraid of because they have seen many currencies leaving and they have been replaced by other currencies just um 
at the time of uh, when when the new currency arrived, then the um, the converting to the new currency was not optimal. <laughs> so exactly, were... nothing is forever. Uh, to say we have always transacted with this currency, it has never worked. It didn't work when we transacted with shells, mm. and then the stones came, and the the shell user said, "Yeah, we, but here we prefer shells." Yeah, but if stones are more sellable. Uh, soon enough, people will turn to stones. When, and, when, when did people uh, transact with stones and shells? What was that? How many years ago? That was around uh, 3000 before Christ. 3000 before Christ. Okay. People and, back then transacted with stones, with seashells, with salt. Actually, I don't know if, uh, if you know it, but the word salary hmm. comes from the Latin salario, which is uh, derived from the word salt. Mm -hmm. Because at, at that time, people were getting their salaries in salt because it was the most sellable item that they could have access to i don't know so i will continue just instead of saying salary i will say salt salt <laughs> well nowadays doesn't work anymore but i found it very interesting that the worst salary derives from the worst it's salt. funny so it's it, it, so the salt salt survived a, a long time so the, the word yes salario salary in latin meant something like your mm. portion of salt for yeah. your wages And um, and right now there's another kind of point uh, in in history where we also kind of switch again the from how we transact and yeah. also store value. So I have the feeling because otherwise there wouldn't be so many gurus and podcasts and whatever out there uh, because there is a need for for information a need to navigate the uh, chaotic space. And then also to to see what uh, new forms of money and value storage will um, stay for a while. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, it, what I just said that the, there has always been different forms of money coexisting, and there has until now always uh, a better one has always come mm. to replace the previous one. That begs the question: what what makes a form of money good, or better said, what makes a form of money better? I researched about it um, in in the morning because um, yeah. might talked about it, and I found out that successful currencies have six, six key attributes: scarcity, divisibility, utility, transportability, durability, and counterfeitability. Yeah, I was pretty much going to say something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I I will okay. go. I will go on that. Uh, yes. But I would like to introduce it. A different structure of those uh, six properties yeah. that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Because um, what I just said a moment ago is money is the most saleable good that a society has available. But what does mm -hmm. it mean, saleable? Money has three dimensions. It has to be saleable across time, meaning it has to enable you to purchase something in the future with whatever you produce today. Mm -hmm. It has to be saleable across space. It has to enable you to pr uh, purchase something in another place than where, it, where you are right now at this very moment. Mm -hmm. And it has also be to, it has to be able to be saleable across scales. It means that it has to enable you to gather small bits of your productivity to purchase mm -hmm. something bigger or divide one big bunch of your productivity to purchase something smaller. This is the, the three problems that money used to solve. The saleability across time means, for example, if you are producing apples, you can sell them only in a very short period of time. You need mm -hmm. something that you can use next week. And so it goes with the others. And my point is that 
these three functions are usually known as, so the sellability across time is usually known as the store of value function of money. The sellability across space is the medium of exchange mm. aspect of money. And the sellability across scales is the unit of account function of money. Mm. Mm. But these six things, they have a hierarchy. They are not all three the same important. They also don't appear in the same order. So mm. first, a certain good um, starts to be recognized by people as something that can hold value over time. Maybe in a society where people are transacting only with uh, animals or, so, mm. or, or with apples, people start to realize that salt holds its value over time. And then people start to store their value in salt. Mm. Any form of money first becomes store of value. When enough people have stored their value in that, then these market participants that share this assumption now, they start to accept it. They are happy to receive salt in exchange mm -hmm. of things. And they, when they have enough of it, they start to also give it in exchange of the products or services that they want. That means that the second thing that happens is that the form of money becomes a medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. But this can only happen after it is a store of value. This is the order. And once everybody, uh, as more and more of this exchange occurs, and, and it's used widely by every participant in this society, then people start denominating their things using grams of salt. And then is when this, the, this form of money becomes a unit of account, which can happen only after it has become a medium of exchange. So basically, the, the properties of money, they are like a house, you know, store of value is the foundation of the house. Medium of exchange is like the walls and the columns. And unit of account is the ceiling of the house. You cannot have a good ceiling in your house if your foundation is weak. And the same cannot build nice walls if you don't have a good foundation. And you cannot put a good ceiling if your walls are not yet built. In the same way, no form of money can be a good unit of account without being a broadly used medium of exchange before. And no form of money can be a broad medium of exchange without being an accepted store of value. Can you explain again the, this unit of account? How, how does it work with salt? Yeah. So unit of account means that it is used as a common unit of measurement to determine the market value of goods and services. It's a step when people are not only accepting salt in exchange for their the goods and services, meaning as a medium of exchange, but they start to price their shoes in salt they start to price oh. their stake of beef in an amount of salt. It means that provides, it also solves the problem of cross prices because imagine a society where people uh, produce 10 different products. Yeah. And if you didn't have this unit of account, you would have to know the price of your product mm. measured in the other nine. And that's a complete chaos. It, it's a, it's a kind of a common language then. So exactly. I would go, so I would take, like to get the bread for two chocolates and the, the, somebody else will say, okay, I would like to get the bread for a uh, hundred apples. Yep. And it's uh, hard to convert. So exactly, exactly. That's the point. Calculator. <laughs> Or a very good head back then. Imagine that back then they didn't have calculators, they didn't have computers. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah. Uh, so the properties that you mentioned, um, mm. they are also uh, related to a concrete property, to the concrete uh, <clears throat> dimension. So, for example, to be a good store of value, mm. a form of money has to have scarcity and durability. 
it means it has to ha- scarcity means it has to be limited in supply relative to other goods. Mm-hmm. And durability means that it can be used repeatedly without losing functionality, meaning that it doesn't rot, it doesn't spoil. But can't you get, just go to the sea and get more salt instead of working and producing apples? You can just go to the sea and produce more, mine, mine more salt. <laughs> That's a really good question, uh, Matthias. You can today, but back then they couldn't. Back then they didn't know how to extract salt from the sea. Mm. They only knew how to mine salt from the earth. And because mm-hmm. mining salt from the earth was very hard, salt was very scarce. And that's why salt was a very good form of money because it was very scarce and it, it had a very good store of value properties. Once humanity discovered how to extract sea, uh, salt from the sea, then this salt was not scarce anymore. And it therefore, uh, that's why we, not, we don't transact with salt today because the it would still be an amazing unit of account and an amazing medium of exchange. But mm-hmm. salt is not a store of value anymore. The foundations of the house of money of salt crumbled and it mm-hmm. all collapsed. How, how do you pay with salt when it rains? So because of the utility and transportability and so on? Well, just you can protect it from the weather. Back then it was a, it was a better problem to have mm-hmm. than transacting with something that rodents. So yeah. my point is, Salt is a very good example to show how when some technological change happens, like discovering a method of extraction of salt from the sea, then the form of money loses the property of scarcity. And if the form of money loses the property of scarcity, it loses its status as money. It cannot be used any longer. The foundation is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, also, sometimes people paid in, in horses, but horses, are they are aging, so they're losing in value. Um, <laughs> well, there are many, many things that were used uh, in, in in historical times, yeah. but at a certain time, um, people switched to metals, for example, and mm. and then after metals, then we went to paper money and so on. This, every revolution has been better than the other in in a way. Mm. And to continue, maybe with the properties, uh, what you mentioned, acceptability and and portability, acceptability being that is used by others and accepted widely mm. and portability that is easily moved across distances that makes a form of money a good medium of exchange. And so that's lastly, also the problem with, yeah. go- with gold because you cannot send gold very easy from London to uh, Berlin. Exactly. But there was a time when nobody could send money over the internet because there was no internet. So that didn't seem to be a, mm. a marking distinction. Ah, the internet wasn't there all the time? So- no, it wasn't. Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And last but not least, there is a unit of account just to have it mentioned. Mm. Uh, divisibility belongs to the properties that make a form of money a good unit of account that is mm. easily divided into smaller units or grouped mm. into bigger units. And there is another uh, quality that's called fungibility. Most people have never heard this word. It just yes. means that one it? unit is exactly the same as any other. Basically, that one kilogram of salt is the same good as any other kilogram of salt. Mm-hmm. But there is there is no good salt and bad salt because if there was good salt and bad salt, then you could not exchange one for the other. Yes, and that's what fungibility means. Our euros are fungible mm-hmm. to a certain extent. There could be some argument whether one euro in paper is the same as one euro online. Mm. Um, they have different properties. So they are not really the same, but 
if a form of money is not fungible, then it cannot act as a unit of account because the units are not the same. Mm. And um, back then, uh, who issued salt? Um, because we now we have the central banks who are kind of sending the money, their money mm -hmm. to the banks, and the banks are sending it to the end users or people. That's the that's the that's the beauty of money in a free market that nobody has to issue it. There were mm. no banks back then. There were no central banks, of course, but there were no banks at all. People would obtain salt in exchange for their uh, goods and services and then exchange it for other goods and services. Similar thing happened with gold. There was nobody issuing gold until the first empires, like the Roman Empire, starting to make coins out of it with the face of the emperor, and that's what would mark a, a true coin. Um, this is a very good point, which actually... Um, I wanted to round this description of the six properties with uh, mm. any good that has any grade of these six properties can be used as money. Mm. And goods that excel in all six are most likely to be chosen as money. And what is very important to understand is that money does not need to be backed by anything. Mm. Money only needs to have these properties. Anything that has these properties can be money. There are certain things that will have these properties only if they are backed by other things. Mm. But this is not a requirement. Anything that has these properties can be money and it doesn't need to be backed by anything. Paper money, as we know it today, we say, well, but paper money is backed by the government. And of course that's necessary because paper by itself, paper is not scarce. Paper is not durable. Paper is not acceptable. It's only acceptable if it has the name of the government written on it. It's only scarce if you mm. trust your government to produce a limited amount of it. That's why you accept from me a 10 euro banknote, but you would never accept from me a piece of paper where I have written 10 euros by hand. That's okay. why paper money needs to be backed because paper is not scarce. But if you are using something that by itself it's scarce, you don't need it to be backed by anything mm. because it already has these properties. Uh, so you say, I trust the government more than, than I trust you? <laughs> hope, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Um, okay. The, um, the point being, to summarize it, yeah. money does not need to be backed yeah. by anything. It just And needs to have these properties. So, so, so the, the, some of the attributes of money was better in the, in, the, in the times of salt because it was decentralized and it wasn't it was different. So let's say it like that. It was okay. different. <laughs> But but right, somehow in the in the history, uh, money was centralized, and they created the yep. central banks, which is kind of a platform, and exactly. we have a kind of platform lock in, and one centralized unit who is making decisions yep. and and so on. So and um, now there could be also an opportunity to change that. Yeah, I'm not sure if that will work because they have um, so also central banks have a certain power to move things in, into the direction uh, they want? They want, yeah. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that transition. So we talk quite a bit about primitive forms of money. At some point, humanity mm. switched to the natural choice, which was precious metals, mm. gold and, and silver and so on. But like you said, God, gold is not really good to transport and it's also not very divisible. That's mm. why people started to... Um, or businesses started to emerge where people would store their gold 
And this business would give the person a certificate for a certain amount of gold. Mm -hmm. And then this person could use this certificate to transact with others. It was essentially a piece of paper, but this piece of paper gave the owner the right to redeem it for gold. And that's why, even if it was just a piece of paper, it inherited the scarcity of gold. And, and these private businesses, these private warehouses where people would store their gold and then exchange it for certificates, they started to converge into the primitive forms of banks, private mm-hmm. banks back then, for mostly run by, by big families. Mm-hmm. Like most people have heard about the Medici in, in Florence. They were not a state or anything similar to it. They were a private family doing banking functions. Mm-hmm. And, and these banks, with time and time, they started to not want to hold gold themselves. Because imagine uh, if you read about the Medici in the 15th century, alone in the city of Florence, there were like 10 or 15 different banks for a population of a few thousand people. So there were too many banks and they were too vulnerable because a small a family, even if you're a powerful family, you still only you still only have a small castle. And if you start to store too much gold inside, you're going to become very attractive for robbers. Mm. So small banks started to think of an idea. What if we had a central warehouse where all of us store our gold? Mm. And this is the idea of a central bank. A central bank is a warehouse of gold for the banks. So a person Mm. gives the gold to the bank and gets a certificate from the bank. And the bank gives this gold to the central bank and gets another certificate from the central bank. Mm -hmm. And this is how basically the idea of central banks uh, emerged. And, And... it's in and of itself, it's a good idea. It all became just corrupted the time when the central banks got under the control of the national governments. Because if this central bank was a really a truly independent entity, then there is nothing very wrong in that idea, at least in my opinion. But once the central bank comes under government control, then the entity capable of issuing certificates and the entity that can profit from having them issued mm. are very close to one another, are very far from independent. And that's when things start to get a little wrong. Mm. But but it's it's now it's like that, I would say. No, definitely it's not like that anymore. Mm. There was a there was a fundamental change to the central banking system in 1971 yeah. when Richard Nixon suspended, suspended mm. the convertibility mm. of the US dollar to gold. Because up to that point, you had only banknotes, but these banknotes, they really mm. were supposed to be exchangeable by gold. Mm. Up to 1971, you were supposed to mm. be able to go to a central bank with a dollar bill and get an equivalent amount of gold. In 1971, basically, um, the United States had to default on this debt. And they had to say, look, um, you know, this thing of converting dollars to gold, um, it's just not going to work anymore, Okay. We're stopping that. But don't worry. Uh, the US has a very big military. Uh, we have a lot of economical power. We still support the dollar. And your dollar is now no, not backed by gold anymore. It's now backed by us. That was pretty much the, that's pretty much the birth of the system that we have today. That's the, that's the same system we have today with, with a couple of twists, such as the fractional reserve. But this leads to, this leads to the current situation today where let me ask you a question, uh, Matthias. Do you have money in the bank? Um, no, I have a database entry in the bank. 
perfect answer. Yes, I knew you would get this one right. But uh, 99% of people, if you ask them, do you have money in the bank? They say, of course I have money in the bank. No, that's not true. You don't have money in the bank. I don't have money in the bank. Mm. Unless, of course, you have a, a, a safe with some cash store in that. If mm. you have a safe with cash in the bank, then maybe you have money in the bank. But no, what, what, we, have, um, what we have is a legal construction uh, through which we have loaned money to the bank Essentially, when you deposit money in the bank, you are giving an interest-free loan to the bank, mm-hmm. and, and the bank issues debt to you. The, the mm-hmm. bank owes you a certain amount of money, and that's the number you can see in your bank account. And the bank, in exchange, allows you to s- transfer this debt to another person. So mm-hmm. if I buy something from you, and I make a bank transaction from my account to your account, essentially, I'm not sending you money. What I'm doing is I'm giving up a little bit of the debt that the bank has with me and I'm giving this debt to you. And now my bank has this debt to you and not to me. So fiat money, that's how these kind of currencies are called. It's it's basically, it's a form of debt. Mm. When you have a 10 euro banknote in your hand, what you have in your hand is a debt from the Central European Bank to you. Every time you give a, 10 euro banknote to someone, you are telling this person, although we don't speak these words anymore, but that's what we are doing. We are telling this person, look, the Central European Bank owes me 10 euros. I'm now going to transfer this debt to you. And that's why also maybe the, the, the physical money, the paper money is still a bit more risk-free than, than the money in your online account. It's a bit uh, different. It's a little different. Uh, it has certain properties that all, um, bank money doesn't have. I know we can get a little into that discussion, but it, it's more about, we, we can talk about this later, I think, because one of yes. the key uh, concepts um, when we come to the latest evolution of money, which is Bitcoin, is censorship resistance. Mm. And that's something that cash has, while bank transfers don't have that. So David, now we talked about this, um, um, yeah, this form of money, paper money, um, about central banks and banks. What do you think about um, inflation? Um, do we have uh, too much inflation? How can uh, currencies protect us? With, or how, how is inflation and currencies yep. connect to each other? Well, when people are asked, what is inflation? That's uh, another very difficult question. Most people say, well, it's prices rising. That's also not true. I'm sorry. What inflation is, it's an increase in the amount of the money supply. The increase in prices, it's the consequence. But inflation is just an increase in the money supply. Uh, let's say you live in an in a abandoned island where there are only a thousand uh, shells mm-hmm. and you own a hundred of those shells. Then you effectively possess 10% of the money supply. And if a boat comes tomorrow and brings a thousand more shells, then suddenly there are 2,000 shells in this island. And the same hundred shells that you have now is worth half of the money supply because the economic power and the productivity of this island hasn't changed. Mm. Only the money supply has changed. Um, therefore, generating more money without an increment in, in, rich, in wealth and productivity implies automatically that the, the purchasing power of every unit is diluted. And an increase in prices is just a consequence. And what is very interesting about inflation is that it's not a natural process. Many people think, yeah, prices should increase over time. That's not true. Mm. There is actually no reason why prices should be increasing other than the extension of the money supply. Because 
human and technological progress actually makes things easier to produce. Uh, I remember uh, I, I have a very uh, nice experience, not, not so nice, but interesting experience. Um, in 2004, I bought uh, for myself a PlayStation Portable. And back then I wanted to uh, download games from the internet and store them in the PlayStation Portable such that I didn't have to buy them. And I went to a shop and, and I asked them, this was 2004, I asked them, what is the, like, the biggest SD card that you have? And they showed me like, look, this is just a new release. It's a four gigabyte SD card. It's the biggest you can get today in the world. It costs 98 euros, mm. four gigabyte SD card. And I bought it, of course, because it would save me a lot of money uh, downloading games. Well, guess what? Uh, last month, I bought a 32 megabyte, a gigabyte, sorry, SD card, which is like eight times bigger. And I paid only seven euros ninety nine. That yes. means I got eight times more uh, better product, and I paid a raw, less than one tenth of the price. Why? Because memory space has gotten much cheaper because technology has enabled that. So actually, prices of goods should be getting lower as uh, technology advances. And mm. the only reason why prices ever increase is an inflation of the money supply. I have a, there is a so-called Simon Abundance Index. I can provide you the link. And it's very interesting because they price things not in monetary units, but in the amount of time a person has to work to purchase them. So imagine you work for 100 euros every hour. Mm. Then I would say uh, buying a SD card for 10 euros is going to cost you one-tenth of an hour, six minutes of your time. So if you price things in time and not in euros or dollars, then we can actually see something very interesting. And that is that things have gotten much cheaper over time. For example. Yeah, I heard that that this is only because we import so many uh, products from from Asia where um, where they can produce it cheaper, but if you would produce so, it in, yeah. in, in Western Europe, then it would be really expensive. And as the prices are also increasing in Asia and also other parts of the world, of course, in the middle of the next or this decade, uh, we will also have much higher prices again. But that um, applies also to what I said, like the, the capability to import things from very far away. It's a mm -hmm. technological progress. Yes, of course. It's uh, you. You also have Moore's law that you have yep. maybe with the same price, you always get more functionality. Processors are, get, are getting faster, yep. exactly, and, and so on and so on. So yep. this is um, an example. And by that, by the Moore's law, by the technology and advancements, uh, we kind of um, can keep prices exactly, and also get more services. It's not that we spend less, but exactly, we exactly. buy more. I can give you one example. According mm -hmm. to this index that I just mentioned, a cup of coffee in 1980 compared to, no, or better say a cup of coffee in 2018 mm -hmm. compared to 1980 costs today, or cost in 2018, 85% less in terms of working time mm -hmm. than it was costing before. However, in monetary units, it costs more. So we are paying with less, we are buying goods with less and less amount of our time. Mm -hmm. However, we have to pay more and more monetary units. And why is that? There is really only one reason why prices are increasing, and that's um, the inflation of the money supply. 
because the actual prices in working hours have decreased. And if money supply would stay constant, prices would mm -hmm. continuously decrease because uh, prices of goods, of course, prices of human labor might increase as human labor is more demanded. But I'm talking about prices of goods that need to be produced in an industrial process. They would go even it would even stay constant or get lower because humanity mm. progresses technologically speaking and this brings me to my point concerning financial independence and uh, the role the choice of your monetary form plays for that because nowadays um nobody comes to the idea of achieving financial independence only by accumulating cash we mm. know it is impossible if you just earn a lot of money Mm. Right, or earned good amount of money and you spend very little of it and then you leave this money in your bank account forever mm. everybody in our community will understand you will never achieve financial independence because you need you need this amount of money to grow even if it's slowly you need this amount you need to invest this amount of money and have it grow year by year in order to ever having the chance of achieving financial independence but this need it's completely artificially created phenomena. If mm. our monetary supply was fixed and stable, mm. it, it would be possible to keep your purchasing power in the future only by accumulating cash. Mm. If a person wants to increase your purchasing power, then of course you have to invest. But mm. the possibility to keep constant your purchasing power by holding cash mm. has been stripped out of our hands or is being stripped out of our hands by the inflation of the monetary supply. And that's what makes investing the difference between your income and your expense not an option, but an obligation if you want to ever achieve financial independence. So, so why, why is this um, money supply increased? Because of money printing and quantitative easing? Or what's yeah, the exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. money printing, quantitative easing. Uh, so very short description. Money printing means that basically the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank clicks a button and says, hey, uh, let's gonna have more euros. Quantitative mm. easing means that they use these euros to purchase freshly uh, created uh, government debt. Basically, they hand over this money to the government. And fractional reserve means also that uh, commercial banks are able to loan to their clients a, a multiple much higher of money than the money that other clients have deposited with them. And why they do this, why does this happen? Basically, government have two options of financing their activities. One is taxation, mm. which is very visible to the population and usually also very uh, not nice. And the second one is inflation. It's the mm. only two ways how any government can finance their activities. And if they don't want to taxate people more, then they have to print money. Um, and they, they're currently doubling down on their efforts on both uh, fields. <laughs> Extremely, yeah. Um, and like... I, I mean, quantitative easing now was in the beginning of Corona for this, uh, the, the, the packages to rebuild the economy. And now yep. you can also see uh, in the governance that are being selected in the programs that they want to uh, increase taxes, especially wealth taxes, a yep. topic. Um, so it's not not getting easier to become financially independent now you can uh, you you can tax free after one year you you can get your bitcoin gains tax free and also after 10 years you can sell your property tax free um and this will be i can't think the ability will be removed um so i'm questioning probably how can, how can people 
build um, their, uh, yeah, their base for retirement, even if you want to retire with 70 or 80. It's getting harder, I would say. Yeah, it is. It is uh, because basically, and these are real world data. If you go to the website of the Federal Reserve, mm. you can search for M2 money supply. This is basically the, the Federal Reserve's own transparent account of how much money is in the world. And mm. then you can see something as crazy as since March of 2020 until today, the amount of money circulating in the world has increased by 25%. 25% in just one year of all the money that was created in the whole history since end of the 19th century until March of 2020, they just mm -hmm. printed a quarter more. And, and that has, of course, of course, has an incredible impact on your savings. Um, many people speak, okay, What is real inflation? Um, real inflation means really how much purchasing power are we losing, not the consumer price index. Mm. And this is rather, there are many sources of this. I'm, I'm not going to try to pinpoint the exact number, but it's roughly something around 15%. Mm. That means you are losing 15% of your purchasing power by holding cash. Let's give this a more tangible consequence. This means that your purchasing power becomes half every five years. Every five years, you lose half of your money. Every 10 years, you lose three quarters, and so on and so on. And then you say, okay, this obviously has an incredible impact in, your, in our goal of most people in this community to, to mm -hmm. ever achieve financial independence, because it's not about, we are not, our goal as in, for financial independence is not to mm -hmm. have a huge amount of money today. What we want is to have enough money or enough wealth to cover our expenses in the future such that We only work if we wish to, not mm -hmm. as we have to. But, but that, you can not do this if you are losing half of your value every four years. Yeah, but that's why everybody is putting their money in, in their ETFs. and In and something think, else, exactly. Anything other than cash. Anything yeah. other than cash. And this is not an option. It's a must. That was the first part of the interview with Daniel. In the next part, we cover the very basics of Bitcoin. Simple to understand for everybody. Thank you for listening to the episode. We really appreciate you taking the time and we would love to hear your feedback in the comments on our website financial-independence.eu or you can head over to our Facebook group and engage with us and like-minded people that you can find at financial-independence.eu slash community. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review if you like. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle FIEuro. And for people on our email list, we post occasionally about special updates, ideas, events, and curate the best contents from the European FI community. You can find that at financial-independence.eu slash newsletter. Thank you for being part of the community and see you in the next episode.